Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a new weekly podcast shining a spotlight on Australian fiction. My name is Claudine Tonellis. As a writer and avid reader, I love chatting about books. And in this podcast, I'll chat to authors, publishers and readers, giving you, dear listener, insight into what's hot on the Australian fiction scene. So if you're looking for your next book recommendation or just want to know more about Aussie fiction writers, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and enjoy. A former city girl and corporate high flyer, Jen J. McLeod is a nomadic novelist who travels across this wide country of ours in a fifth-wheeler caravan that she calls Myrtle the Turtle, pulling up stumps wherever her fancy takes her to connect with readers and to indulge in her passion to write. She writes stories about small towns with big hearts, lovable characters and embracing second chances. Her brand new novel, House of Wishes, is her sixth novel and the third of her novels set in the fictional town of Calangari Crossing. A story which centres on three women and a secret pact made between two teenage girls 40 years earlier. It's a heartbreaking exploration of loss of innocence, grief and family estrangement. A book that cannot fail to move readers with its no-holds-barred commentary on the once cruel treatment of unmarried mothers by their own families, by the church and society at large. I fell in love with the central characters in this book, as I know you will too. I'm delighted to welcome Jen to the podcast today. Hi, Jen. Hello, Claudine. Very nice to be here. I'm up in sunny Atherton on the Tablelands up here in Queensland. Oh, that's fantastic. I can hear birds chirping in the background. How lovely for you. (laughs) Um, So, Jen, can you tell me about House of Wishes and how it was that you came to write this story? Look, this story has actually been bubbling away for a long time. Um, Thank you for those beautiful words. Um, It is the third Calangari Crossing story. So what it has in common with my first two books is that the town of Calangari Crossing. Other than that, it's a totally standalone read. But I loved Calangari Crossing so much when I wrote House for All Seasons, I didn't want to leave, so I wrote Simmering Season gave a new a character, a, a whole new story. I still get emails from people asking me, what is it about Dandelion House? Why have you put this house in the middle of a river, um, on a hill in the middle of a river? And um, is it a real place? Can I visit Kellingary Crossing? So, you know, people have loved the place as much as I loved the place when I wrote House for All Seasons. So I decided to go back. Um, and that's really what prompted it. Yes, as I mentioned in the in the introduction, and you've confirmed, it's the third of your novel set in Kellingary Crossing. Crossing. But is there anything in particular that keeps you coming back to this to this setting? Is the town based on a real place, somewhere that you visited? The, the original setting, yes, um, based on a town called Sortel, which is a, a town just south of Coffs Harbour, part of the Coffs Harbour region in New South Wales. And I lived there. In fact, my big sea change when I left corporate Sydney, my big um, sea change was to buy a cafe. So I bought a cafe in a small seaside town called Sortel. And um, it's a beautiful little town. And in fact, um, that's what I based Calangary Crossing on. Only I picked it up and whacked it on the western side of the Great Dividing Range because I can do that as a writer. <laughs> I think I was so familiar with it and I just fell in love with the, the setting and also the um, the characters in that. The other reason I wanted to launch into another book as well as the emails that I get from readers was there's a character in Calangari Crossing who's who actually owns the Dandelion House and her name is Gypsy and she was quite an interesting character but as it turned out, interestingly enough, she didn't end up having a point of view at all in House for All Seasons. So there was an element of, um, of, of House for All Seasons and, and of the Dandelion House that had not been told. So I wanted to go back with this third book to answer those questions about what is the Dandelion House all about? Who was Gypsy and 
what is the history? Um, why did somebody build this place where they where they built it? So I get to go back in time um, to when the place was first built in the uh, late 1800s. But I, it is a dual time frame story. So the majority of the story is current day or 2014 and um, 1974. And it was a lot of fun. I've got to tell you going back to 1974 when I was a teenager. I've had the privilege of reading this beautiful book, but for those who haven't read it, can you tell me a little bit more about the story of House of Wishes? Yes. So you alluded to the teenage girls in 1974 at Dandelion House, two strangers um, until they meet there make a pact to keep a secret um, 40 years later um, a mother's uh, wish um, is to have her ashes scattered in a small town cemetery and that leads Beth uh, her grieving daughter to head out to Calangari Crossing uh, where she basically discovers that life is about the choices we make and the connections that matter. Now, we touched on Dandelion House um, a little bit earlier, and it's as much a character of this book as much as the women are. So was Dandelion House based on a real place? Look, no, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because that's that's sort of like the, the, the sort of emails that I would get from readers after they have um, read House for All Seasons. So I'm really glad that you have got that out of reading House of Wishes, that I've managed to still keep that um, that image, I suppose. No, look, it's it's really pure imagination. But, you know, I had a great canvas to work with. I mean, an island in a house in the middle of an island on a on a on a perched up on a hill where on a misty day you know you it looks like it's floating on a cloud and the gargoyles and yeah that very interesting little um little background um to the story I had a lot of fun you know one of the hardest things about this process was um the connections making sure that I was true to House Four Seasons where a lot of uh you know where I was drawing a lot of trying to remember I mean that was 2013 I I I published that one, so yeah, it was um, it was interesting going back and trying to not retell the story, but tell enough so that people could read the story without having read House of All Seasons. Indeed, well, you were successful because I haven't read House of All Seasons. But having said that, I'm now intrigued, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have to go back. Good. Now I don't know if this is going to be a spoiler, and you can tell me if it is. But about 20 years ago, the New South Wales Parliament held an inquiry into adoption practices, and as a result, um, in 2012, issued a formal apology for forced adoption practices, which led to incredible suffering and trauma experienced by young mothers, fathers, and children who were affected. It's a shameful blight on our social history and a theme that continues to find its way into stories decades later. So I wanted to ask you, um, why was it important for you to touch on this theme in your story? Look, I think that comes down to one of the main themes being, and it's in my blurb, it's in my taglines everywhere, it's about the choices we make and it's being, being it's about being able to make our own choice. You can turn on the news just tonight and there'll be something on there about somebody making choices on our behalf, um, everybody's behalf, but Obviously, women feature, you know, we're high up there where people feel that they can still make our decisions, our personal choices for us. So I think that is the, the strongest message um, in the story. And that really did drive the whole, uh, all the characters. I mean, all the characters have choices to make. The males and the females um, all have have choices to make and they have to 
consider the ramifications and, and so on. Now, this book was written from multiple points of view, and I love that you seem to be able to get into their heads so easily. Tell me, did you have to do any particular research in the writing of this book? Certainly for the um, the the forced adoptions, I, I did. I went through Trove and a whole lot of transcripts and things just uh, whilst whilst the book is not full of of, of facts at all, but I needed to make sure I had a good grasp of the emotional sort of turmoil as much as you can reading a transcript. And I've got to tell you, I stopped reading. There was a point where I stopped reading because it was just so upsetting. I had to remind myself this is sort of fiction, yeah. um, and uh, and just concentrate on telling a good a good fictional story. There was some other research I did in relation to farming practices, mm-hmm. um, which I thought was a really interesting um, thing. And I love writing in multiple points of view, and I love writing in a male point of view. I find it such a great challenge um, to um, to write a good a good male character. Well, I think you did a fantastic job. Don was an, a particularly real character for me um, and I love the way that you got into his head. You saw the girls from his from his eyes and I and I found that really quite a fascinating and a really heartwarming point of view. Thank you. Uh, what I found interesting about Don from a writer's perspective, I mean I'm a panster Although there was a bit of bit of plotting involved in this because there was those links that I sort of had to be careful of. But, um, you know, really when you're writing a story, and the story is about Beth and her mother who passes away, it's a story about these two teenage girls who make a pact. And yet, as I was writing it, I could clearly see this story was turning into Don's story. Mm. So, and they, and all the other ones seemed to sort of ended up being, you know, almost support characters to to Don's emotional journey and and yeah I I, Don still makes me cry (laughs) quite a tragic figure in many ways I like characters who 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 have all those sorts of issues you know I don't write perfect characters I mean even Tom I know someone's probably going to pick me up for Tom because he his faux pas are a little bit you know un-PC sometimes um but you know again that's just real world you know we're not all that's real life yeah yeah exactly but he's learning good on Tom he's learning good on him yeah he's willing to (laughs) learn and I love that about him too I read that you believe in in past lives from my point of view it seemed to me that hiding pregnancies of unmarried mothers was often packaged about about a second chance I guess and Dandelion House was more a house of healing and about exploring choices um, but this wasn't the common experience for unmarried pregnant girls sent to these homes, was it? No, no. You write a lot about these, you know, second chance storylines, but in reality, I mean, you know, this didn't really happen to a lot of girls. They didn't really get a second chance. Yeah, well, that's right. And I, I think the point I wanted to make was with um, with what Gypsy's approach to everything was that she doesn't coerce, she doesn't make their decisions, but she makes sure that they're informed. And I think that's what used to that's what what wasn't given to women back then they weren't informed so they couldn't make decisions Um, it's not that people were necessarily making the decisions for them in every case sometimes they just weren't told the truth or they just weren't given all the information they needed to make an informed decision so they made the wrong decision and lived with that all their lives and I think in fact from some of the research that I did the women who who did that the women who had it had the children taken away some of their stories were different to or some of their um, how they coped through life were different to the women who who did make that they were given the choice but due to not having the right information they made the wrong choice in the end and they had to live with actually making the wrong choice so that was you know for for many women that was the 
even more traumatic outcome of, of their situation, that they made the choice and they've had to live with that. The recurring theme that screamed out to me from your novel was this silencing nature of a patriarchal society. Um, it was the bullying men who robbed our central characters of their voice. Um, Lissy and Irene didn't get a say in what happened to them or their babies and Don certainly didn't get a say in the path that his life took because of traditional inheritance laws and neither did his brother Michael really, did he? Yeah. Oh, gosh, Michael. Yes, and you know that still happens today. I can I could name people right now who are seriously women who should be taking over the land, but that's just not the way it's done in the country. That's still happening today, which is fascinating um, for me. But you know, I'm I'm not a I'm not a a country girl. I'm a city girl who just fell in love with the country. So I'm learning a lot about the country, and that unfortunately is still happening. I think things are changing, but it's slow. But I think there are also some things that will never change and I think the women's right to choose certain aspects of their, of their lives will always be um, an issue. I can't ever see that changing. But hopefully, you know, we just write these stories and, and hope that, you know, reader by reader, bit by bit, we can influence in a little way. I certainly, that's what my books try to do. I don't try to change the world with my books, but I just want to make people think and maybe reassess how they might view the world a little bit. The despair of drought-stricken farmers and their families is another theme you so poignantly explored in this novel. I tasted the dust that coated the windows and seeped into the cupboards and found its way between the bed sheets. I saw the cemetery filled with gravestones of those who succumbed to the black dog. How is it, do you think, that farmers continue to farm their land in spite of these conditions and risks? Gosh, you give me goosebumps just even um, talking about that because some of the scenes that we've seen while we've been travelling some of the land we've gone through and some of the tales that we hear, you know, it's, it is really heartbreaking. And, and there's these huge flurries of, of, of outpourings of, of help and everything, and then it sort of drizzles away. But you know what? It just doesn't drizzle away here. It's, um, you know, it's 24-7 for, for, for landowners. It's, it's 24-7 of heartache. So I think, you know, again, if, if a story can remind people that there are people, you know, doing it pretty hard um, and it's not just that one push and flurry of, of donations and things, that, um, that's, that can be a good thing. I love that your novels are so quintessentially Australian and, you know, there's nothing I love more than uncovering and shining a spotlight on Australian storytellers. So it seems that we have something in common. So can you tell me about your Paddock to Print campaign and what you've been doing to bring this campaign to light? Basically... Um, Whilst I'm travelling, I visit a lot of regional areas where, you know, normally authors don't don't go to do library events and things. So small towns and rural areas, um, Atherton Tablelands up here has welcomed me so beautifully. I've done every single library up here just about. And I talk about the writing process. I talk about the publishing process, a bit of a warts and all look at, um, you know, what it's like to, to have your dream of publishing come true. Um, but... Uh, also, at the end, I always talk about supporting local libraries, supporting um, Australian authors. You know, I, I, I say to them, you know, if you love reading um, Dan Brown and Nora Roberts and Daniel Steele and all those overseas big names, that's great. But walk into your library and ask the librarian who writes in Australia like Dan Brown, Nora Roberts, and, you know, because I can, I can name, you know, you give me a genre and I'll tell you an Australian author who writes beautiful 
books in that genre. So that's what Paddock to Print is all about. It's about reminding people that we have great authors here in Australia. Um, we are a very small market in terms of um, books and publishing um, from, a, from a readership perspective. So we really need readers to focus on Australian, to keep publishers publishing Australian books. I mean, publishers make a lot of money by importing those big names, and that's what allows them to take the occasional risk with a new author and, and put their books out there. So... You know, I tell people not to stop reading your Dan Browns. If you love him, that's great. But, you know, pick up a, pick up a Greg Barron or something um, here in Australia and you might fall in love with an Australian author. I also tell them to, when they leave here, to go to one friend and say, I just met an Australian author and say who it is. Um, I talk about how they can go about reviewing um, a book, that you don't need to be a writer to review a book. One word will do. Wonderful. I have also been to small towns that have no library, so I talk to them very much about um, supporting their local library because if you don't use it, you will lose it. Um, so we need to keep books in circulation in libraries for those people who can't afford to buy um, an endless supply of books. Uh, authors are a great resource for readers and for us authors who want our books to be read by as many people as possible. I mean, let's face it, that's why I'm author rights. You know that I'm all about promoting Australian authors. There's a message in there for listeners out there to, uh, you know, go to the library and ask for an Australian author in the genre that you love. Go to the bookstore and support Australian writers out there. Exactly. Um, you know, I, I often, I get a giggle out of the librarian who's usually sitting at the back of the room when I do my library talk and I say, you know, a librarian is not a checkout chick. They actually love talking to their clients and they love recommending books. So, you know, ask them questions. Jen, this is your first self-published novel, isn't it? It is. And can you tell me, has the experience of self-publishing changed your approach to writing? I think I was becoming lazy as, a, as an author with traditional publishing. I found myself lapsing into a, um, oh, they'll fix that, you know. Um, oh, they'll, they'll tidy that up. Oh, they'll do this, they'll do that. Um, so I was almost, I don't know, I was sort of partially removing myself from the process. I mean, it's a hard thing to explain. Uh, so, but, but I now know, I mean, I wanted to try this. I wanted to try self-publishing. I started two years ago um, with a short story collection and stopped. I thought, oh, I'll try with a short story collection and see how I go. Um, but um, what I've discovered, the, the main thing I've discovered is the importance of that very, very um, – well-heard phrase, make every word count. Um, never more important from an author-publisher sort of perspective because word count is everything in a book. I mean, we can't afford to write a giant tome. It's a business. I am now a business while Myrtle pressed. you like that? Oh, I do. I had to call <laughs> So Myrtle the turtle has turned into a publishing house. And she's wild, Myrtle. I love it. She's wild, Myrtle. Yeah, yeah. And my logo, I drew a little. I did a little logo with a little little turtle with wheels. So yeah, it's a business. Um, I've had to put my business hat on, and I've had to now write a story that has all those complex characters and that lovely landscape, and you know something that draws readers in. But I couldn't just throw words on the page willy nilly, and you know have somebody else sort of round them off and. And tidy them up. It was all me. So it's like step self-publishing is like standing naked in the supermarket. Um, mm. It's really putting yourself 
out there because it is it's yeah it's it's all me so it's been pretty amazing oh and diane blacklock who first looked at my unwieldy bloody manuscript and gave me a lovely structural report um but um but yes then um then it was over to me to to make those uh, those changes her suggestions and um and go from there but it's been um both equally enlivening and daunting yeah, so do you think you'll continue down this road? I definitely will. And look, I think even if I do another traditionally published book, I think I will still, I want to keep the skill. Um, I, I want to, I mean, I, I did it once and look, I did a lot of things the hard way. So I'm a lot wiser now to the to the processes. Um, but I think also if I can manage it, I'd like to put out more than one book. I mean, traditional publishing doesn't really allow you to do that. I'd like to put out more than one book a year because, you know, a reader reads a book very quickly and they're often looking for for more. So I have so many stories in me. I have three manuscripts sitting here that are basically all at around 100,000 words, um, 100,000 really bad words. That You know, it's, it's just the dirty draft stage of my, my books, but I've got three of them here. So, yeah, I'm quite excited about um, – I'm, I'm really chuffed that I've done it um, and uh, I'm quite excited about the process now. Given that you're a published author six times over now and um, you said you've got three manuscripts still sitting there waiting to be published, I wondered if you had any tips to offer aspiring writers out there. Um, one of the first things I say in my library talks um, when I have writers in the room is there is a difference between writing and storytelling. And this is probably very applicable now because we're about to launch into NaNoWriMo. Mm. NaNoWriMo was... I wrote House for All Seasons in NaNoWriMo, um, wow. so that was my 2013 release. It ended up being number five best debut, top-selling, sorry, number five top-selling debut fiction novel in 2013. Um, and that actually, that book actually came as a result of NaNoWriMo. Um, and I think I had written a few books before that and had them rejected. But I think what happened with um, NaNoWriMo was, you know, you're not allowed to, NaNoWriMo, for those who aren't, aren't aware, it's a basically sit down and do 50,000 words in 30 days. So they, in doing that amount of word count, there's no time to edit. There's no time to reread your last paragraphs before you start off the, the next morning. It's just bum in chair and get words down. And I think by doing that, what I discovered was I had a voice. You know, this author's voice, people used to throw this around when I was learning the craft. I'm thinking, what the hell is author's voice? But it all, but it came to me from doing NaNoWriMo. I stopped trying to be Nora Roberts and Daniel Steele. I stopped editing my words as I went, and I just got into the flow of the story. And another thing that happened, um, um, the other bit of advice I give to people is to network, is to find a group of writers, whether it's online. I joined the Romance Writers of Australia, even though at the time I didn't think I wrote romance novels, um, you know, but they are so embracing and accepting and um, I learned an awful lot. But I, I found a tribe and a network of people and I remember doing a, an online course was just our boot camp and one of the lovely people in boot camp at the end, you know, there's always a clown in the class. I think I was the class clown on this particular um, um, online course. Anyway, always cracking jokes and things. And at the end, one of the people, Dana, said to me, Jen, I hope when you do write, you put your humour into your stories. And I sort of went, oh, I went a bit quiet and I went, humour in my stories? I write serious fiction. Um, so, um, so anyway, 
what happened was that was part of my author voice. That's what I discovered in Nano when I just started writing without editing myself. I discovered that I loved putting humor into my stories. So Dana was right. Thank you, Dana. And um, and I think it's a really um, nice part of my stories. I mean, you've talked a lot about the emotional side of the story and, you know, how Don broke your heart. But I ho- also hope I made you laugh. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yes, it, it was remiss of me not to say that. You absolutely <laughs> did make me laugh. I really loved those humorous aspects to all of the characters and Tom in particular. <laughs> I thought I loved yeah. him. <laughs> I, think, I think I've got a little bit of a crush on Tom, actually. <laughs> me too. Oh, that's great. So, Jen, what's next? Are you going to focus on one of these unpublished manuscripts? I am indeed, yes. I have. I think I have the one. Oh, no, there's two I'm still sort of deciding on. Um, but I also, for some reason, I don't know why, Claudine, but I woke up one day talking in rhyme, you know, like um, Dr Zeus, Fox in Socks. Yep. And, um, and I sat down that day and I ended up writing three a three three book children's picture book series and um it made me feel so happy writing rhyming books so so there's lots of opportunities I'm really not quite sure at the moment with my book not coming out now until well the pre-orders are up but it doesn't launch until officially until the 19th of November so I'm still very much in pre-release mode with my book I'm reinvigorated I think um as a writer there was a point not long ago where I was deciding do I want to do this Um, Because it takes, you know how much it takes from your life, um, from your personal life, from your friends and your family. You know, even when you're not sitting at the computer as a writer, your head is always with your characters. Um, And, you know, I I don't know about you, but I I find myself getting into trouble sometimes because I'm (laughs) ignoring people. Um, But I'm not, you know, I'm just having conversations in my head. That's what we do. So I do find the full-on writing to deadline, someone else's deadline, very distracting when it comes to sort of life and I think at one point I sort of thought oh do I want it and and sitting all day you know sitting 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 uh so I did at one stage sort of think you know do I want to put health and life you know before everything else but I I found I missed the connection too much I missed the connection with the writing I missed the connection I even went offline for a little while but I missed the connection of being online with readers you know loving loving words and loving books so so I'm back and I'm staying for a while well that's wonderful to hear Jen there was a story on your blog that I laughed out loud to it's a story of you setting up camp and you and you put your sign up is that right you've you've got you've got a sign that you that you stake into the ground that announces your presence and that you were walking around the campsite one day and and there were people reading your books oh Claudine I have do I have signs hey (laughs) do I have signs I have my name plastered over the back of Myrtle the turtle I have magnets on the side of my car Uh, and yes when we pull up I have a little lawn sign that I got from Vista Print and I whack it down in the in the ground but oh yeah I've had some lovely towels I pulled into a a campsite one day and I we it Myrtle is 25 foot long she's a fifth wheeler she's 25 foot long so she's not little she sounds cute but she's not um and my job as the uh navigator and co-pilot is to get out and reverse Jeanette in while she's driving well I get out of the car at this particular site and a lady comes out of the caravan next door and goes oh you're my favorite author (laughs) and she comes up and she gives me this huge hug and we start talking books and of course 
Jeanette's sitting out there in the middle of the road going, hello, we're supposed to be parking the van here. <laughs> Naughty Jen. <laughs> but, um, but yes, um, I have walked around caravan parks and look, I always, I always stop and stare at people when they're reading a book to see what they're reading. And sometimes they're reading mine and it's such a thrill. <laughs> I can only imagine how that feels. So the reason I brought that up was because obviously you're making connections with, you know, readers everywhere. But for those who, you know, may not have heard of you before, God forbid, and would be interested in learning more about you and your books, how can they find you? Well, they can find me at jenjmcleod.com. They can find me on Instagram. I'm jenjmcleod, nomadic novelist. And they can find me on Facebook. On my official author page, I keep it pretty official and serious. But if you want to follow my travels, I welcome all friends to my Facebook account awesome fantastic now although this was my first jen j mcleod novel it certainly won't be my last i'm eager to revisit the town of Kalangari crossing as a start so jen congratulations on a beautiful novel in house of wishes i know readers are going to love it as much as i did thank you so very much for joining me on talking aussie books today thank you claudine you've been a pleasure now listeners don't forget to check my instagram and facebook feeds for a chance to win a free signed copy of jen's new book now make sure you follow the prompts to win Thanks again, Jen. Thank you, Claudine. Bye. Well, that's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or drop me a line via my Instagram at Claudine Tinellis or on my webpage, claudinetinellis.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading.